Well, good morning again. Take your Bibles, please, and turn with me to the book of Colossians. We're going to continue unpackaging this important passage in chapter 3. We've been looking at these virtues that Paul has identified ought to be evident in the believer's life that are a product of our salvation, which was ordained before the foundation of the world through the doctrine of election, as we have extensively studied. And the manifestation of these virtues is played out in the practice of forbearance and forgiveness, doing that because it's been modeled for us perfectly by God through the work and person of Jesus Christ, and by and through whom He extend to us great forbearance and forgiveness. And so, Paul uh, wants to make certain that the practical demonstration, the proving ground of our Christian faith, if you will, is demonstrated in this practice of, in the presence of forbearance and forgiveness. And so we'll have more to say about that today. Let's go to the Lord in prayer, then we'll continue to look at this important passage. Lord, we love you. We thank you for this glorious day that you've given to us. We lift up to you our dear friend Evan and his sons, Elijah and Isaiah. We ask that you would be with them today comfort them, give them peace. I pray that they're surrounded by people who love them and care about them, other dear brothers and sisters in Christ who can um, remind them of your mercy and your provision, who will just simply be there to be there for them. We ask that you would um, comfort uh, them and keep them in peace as only you can do. We ask for the presence of your Holy Spirit today, Lord, as you uh, minister to us through your word. We have been reminded this morning through song about the importance of your word and the truths that it contains and how we rest in the comfort that they provide. Help us today, we pray, Lord, to be attentive, to be focused, and to um, be mindful um, in regards to the content of what we're being given. You have graciously preserved this word through all the ages. These are your words for us. They are relevant, they are real, they are living and they are applicable. So help us, Lord, to leave day differently than we arrived. Forgive us for our sins. Forgive us for our intentions in terms of other things to not either be focused on you or to casually walk away from you or to ignore your word. We pray, Lord, that you would forgive us for those things. And renew in us the joy of your salvation. Keep us and preserve us, we pray, for your glory and for your honor. In Christ's name, amen. Colossians chapter 3, beginning with verse 12, Paul writes as follows, So, as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another, there's that issue of idea of forbearance, and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Well, as I noted, Paul here spells out for us five Christian virtues that are ultimately demonstrated in two important acts, the acts of forbearance 
and forgiveness. And we'll see today that all of these things then are clothed and held together with the glue, the bond, if you will, of love, which produces ultimately unity. Now, I have much more to say about that. Unity is a word that oftentimes um, troubles me, especially in the Christian evangelical sense, because it's often been used to allow error into the church. All for unity, all for unity, peace in our day, all for unity. And oftentimes that requires a great deal of compromise with regards to important truths because oftentimes people won't agree on certain things. And so those who hold to a more firm position doctrinally will often give up the high ground in order to appease those who do not. And the consequences is the corruption and the corrosion of truth. And so we want to be careful about that. One other thing I want to talk about practically, too, is that oftentimes people will read these passages, and what they will automatically end up doing is tending to pull back from any opportunities to confront people with the gospel. They'll say, well, I'm going to be more, you know, if I have a heart of compassion, I'm not going to really say anything to that person. If I'm going to be humble and gentle and kind, I really shouldn't be engaged in dealing with those issues. Well, we have great examples from Jesus Christ, who was the perfect embodiment of every one of these virtues, dealing with people who were indeed involved in open sin, who who were an affront to him and his work, and how he dealt with them, and he dealt with them firmly. And he had no qualms about identifying them for what they were, calling them what they were, and calling them to faith and repentance. And so we too ought to be as equally bold and as convicted of these things as he was. Not to give in, not to cave in, not to capitulate as is often the way of men in our age. And this is a concern to me because the the church is capitulating on many things. We talked this morning a little bit about Roe and that decision, and, and, and within hours of that decision being issued, we had Christianity Today and others of their ilk issuing cautions and things of that nature that we shouldn't be really talking so much about the decision or praising God for it. We don't want to be offensive to people or to be an affront to them. We need to be winsome and, and easy and, and more like Stephen Colbert, as Tim Keller would say, and our approach to people. Well, Stephen Colbert is a heretic and, a, and an unsaved man who needs Christ, and we're not going to copy or imitate Stephen Colbert. Shame on you, Tim Keller, for telling us to do that. Uh, I have great concerns about Tim Keller and where he is and all these issues, and many others like him. But what we're called to do is to be people who are demonstrating these virtues in a way that shows that they're real, and we can do that, and we can still deal with sin, and we ought to. You know, the idea here that Paul is communicating is is that primarily within the church, we ought to be people who are getting along with each other in a loving, kind, and gentle way, imitating Christ in that context and forbearing and forgiving. We do the same in the world, but we also are mindful of the fact that we have to identify sin when we see it and call it sin when it is sin. That's our charge. If we don't do that, then we're withholding the good news. We're no longer the peacemakers that we're called to be in the Beatitudes. Blessed are the peacemakers. Now, the peacemakers are not peacekeepers. They're peacemakers. And that peace is through the gospel of Jesus Christ, which, as we know, he came with a sword. He came to divide and to put asunder, and that's the consequence oftentimes. And so, the, you know, the gospel can be uh, divisive, and it often is. Uh, you know, the same sun that melts the wax hardens the clay, as they say. And so, too, with the gospel. 
And so this is not a call to compromise. It's not a call to hide. It's not a call to use these virtues as an escape from dealing with issues within the church and outside the church. And again, we should do so intelligently and with clarity and with conviction and with words that have meaning and with the direction towards bringing people to Jesus Christ through the power of the gospel. And so uh, we need to be mindful of that. So don't use these as an opportunity to shy away from dealing with issues that you may be having to handle or are confronted with by the world and within the church and elsewhere. Paul here uh, clearly would not be of that mindset, as we know from the fact that he's being very direct with the false teacher in the church. He's being very direct with the congregants of this, of this church, um, as he was with others. Um, as, you, as you recall, Paul was not one to pull punches. He told Barnabas, John Mark was not ready to go on a missionary journey because he wasn't spiritually mature enough to do that. He didn't forbear to the point of allowing error to come in by bringing someone along with him who was immature in Christ. He said, he's not ready. Don't bring him. Well, Barnabas got upset. Shame on Barnabas because Paul was right. And Barnabas had no right to impose Mark upon Paul and to bring him on a journey that he couldn't handle spiritually. Um, And so Paul dealt with that. And Paul dealt with issues in other churches too. And he identified people when they were out of line and even with Peter, right? He said to Peter, and we have it recorded in all of Scripture, he rebuked Peter for his caving in to the Judaizers. And he didn't forbear or forgive Peter to the point that he couldn't identify error. And so, too, we need to be cautious about that. Is it warm in here? Is it just me? It's warm? Yeah, I'm warm. You got it? It's just the power of the message, you know. You know, they always tell me, Pastor, bring the heat. So, hey, you know, here it is. So, we, we, ought, we ought to be mindful of... of these issues and and how to apply them. And so Paul here is giving us some very practical advice as it relates to how we interact with each other. Christ, of course, being the perfect example of that, as we know from verse 13, forbearing, forgiving, and and doing that in the context of how God has forbeared against us with regard to the punishment for our sin and forgiven us for our infractions and clothed us in the righteousness of Christ. And so too, we need to be mindful of that as we deal with other people. And I think from what I'm hearing from you that this has had a great impact upon your life and that indeed, from a practical standpoint, um, it's really kind of hit home for many of you. And I think it's an area that's a real challenge. Uh, oftentimes, and is something that we need to work hard at and to be mindful of. Well, these virtues ultimately are the ingredients for holy living. We've been talking about the idea of holiness in action, the idea that we demonstrate the reality of our salvation by conducting ourselves in a particular way. Paul will tease out for us the fact that there are those who engage in certain practices, and those practices demonstrate the presence of the flesh and the predominance of sin, and that's an issue and a concern. And that as a Christian, because we have been created anew, we have been given a new attire, we have been clothed, we are being pressed into the image of Christ, that the reality of that is indeed this holy living that comes out of it. It is necessarily the consequence of that salvation. Paul also is addressing really to the corporate character of the holiness that Paul has um, in, 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 in view here. Obviously, this flows over into the church, um, and he expects that these virtues are going to be 
first demonstrated within the body of Christ. If you want to practice how to be, uh, uh, have a heart of compassion and how to be kind and humble and gentle and patient, that happens here first. This is your opportunity. This is your training ground. Now, this doesn't mean you get to come here and be whatever you want, but you're going to demonstrate the reality of these virtues in the body of Christ. If they're going to be present anywhere, they have to be present here. This has to be the predominant attitude and mindset of those who are in the body of Christ. And with Christ as the head of the church, it only makes sense that that would be the idea that Paul is communicating. And so, for Paul, there is, a, there is a close connection, as we have already seen, between the reality of what we are and the reality of what ultimately these things are with regard to them being worked out in the work and person of Jesus Christ. If indeed we're created in the image of God, if indeed we think about the image of God in man, and what it means for us as human beings to be made in his likeness, as we're told in Genesis 1.26, we oftentimes conceive of that in individualistic terms. Although there is a personal dimension to that, there is something far greater in view in that context, namely the way that we as a race were made to reflect God's glory and majesty together. And so when, when God created man in his image, certainly there was an individualistic component, but the ultimate objective was that man, the race of man, to be collectively demonstrating that in giving glory to God. And so for the church, we need to be mindful of that. What is God's purpose in saving us? What is God's purpose in regenerating us, giving us new life, clothing us, putting us in this new Christian attire, pressing in the image of Christ into us, constantly renewing us? The ultimate objective is that we are reflecting his glory and his majesty together. That's important for the church to be attentive to. Now, we also are reminded of the fact that the God in whose image we have been made is the God who is the Holy Trinity. We just got done with a conference that focused on our triune God, and I think there's an important component to that idea and that concept present here. And although he is one God, he is at the same time one God in three persons, as we know, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. His entire existence his entire existence is one of unity within diversity and diversity expressed in unity that serves only to magnify his glory. That's how the Trinity works. So just as he exists in eternal relationship, it then follows that those who bear his likeness in his creation do so also in their relationship. And just as sin has disrupted and destroyed our relationships on the human level as much as with God, then so too salvation must restore those relationships on both levels. And so we see within the context of the Trinity, you have, uh, you have a diversity in the context of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We have obviously the roles that they play that we talked about in the context of how the Trinity works, yet there's unity. There's purpose in terms of the objectives that they are achieving as it relates to the purposes of God. And so salvation then ought to reflect and mirror that reality within the body of Christ. 
This is why we have to be so cautious about what comes into the church. This is why we have to be so cautious about the attitudes that are adopted within the church. This is why these virtues ought to be things that are on the minds of believers on a regular basis as we build each other up in the faith into and like Christ, Paul in Ephesians chapter 4, ultimately bringing us together in a unified approach based upon and reflecting the very unity of the Trinity. That's, what we're, that's ultimately the goal here, the objective. And so as we, as we know very well, Paul calls these Christians in Colossae to put on these virtues as they grow in faith and grow in holiness All the attitudes and types of behavior he identifies have to do with renewing relationships with our fellow human beings, beginning with those in the church. And that's interesting. The consequence of this renewal, the consequence of this salvation is is indeed to, to bring about and restore the very relationship that God intended from the beginning. We know from verse 12 You've been chosen of God, holy and beloved. God brought you into existence in the context of placing you into his body for a purpose. There is a plan here in play, and we need to be mindful of it. And so we are growing in faith. We grow in holiness. The attitudes change. The ultimate thing that takes place And what they all have in common is the fact that they all express a concern for others that is greater than a concern for self, putting others before yourself. Now, this all happens within the context of the body of Christ. It happens in the world too, but this is why it's important for us to come together. If you're not here at church, if you're not part of an assembled body of Christ, you don't get to demonstrate a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, and forbearance and forgiveness and ultimately love in the context in which God intended it. If you're not here, these realities, these virtues that flow out of your salvation aren't really known by anyone. I won't know if you're not here, if you really do have a heart of compassion, if your attendance is infrequent, if you're not really part of what's going on here. No one can really garner or understand whether or not you are one of these people. This happens here. Do you have a heart of compassion? How do I know? Oh, you don't kick your cat. Okay, I'm not talking about cats. I got in trouble for that. <laughs> I was going to say something else, but I'm not. So. But the, the, the virtues here are for our mutual benefit. How, isn't it, don't you like it when you're treated with a heart of compassion? Don't you like that? That's nice, isn't it? Isn't it nice when someone is kind to you? Isn't that, isn't that wonderful? When someone extends kindness to you? Isn't it nice when someone is humble to you? Yes, indeed. When they're gentle and they're patient, That happens here. We get to see that here. And ultimately, the product of that, when someone forbears, when they may have the ability or the right to come to you and say, they choose not to. They don't do that. They forgive you if there's been an offense. That is happening in the body of Christ. And so, friends, I want you to understand that. 
because oftentimes there's a perspective about the church that is diminished. There's a perspective about the church that says, oh, it's just not all that important. I can do those things anywhere, but the real proving ground is here first, and as you do them here, you'll get better doing them out there, all right? And so I want to encourage you and exhort you to demonstrate the reality of these. Oftentimes, these virtues flow out of the use of your spiritual gift. Using your gift within the body of Christ, each one of you, as the redeemed of Christ, at the time of your salvation, was given at least one spiritual gift. The the performance of that gift, the demonstration of that gift, happens in the body of Christ. It is the currency of grace. And so you use that gift here. You use that gift within the confines of the body of Christ, building each other up in the faith through that. God in His grace has done that for us. And so as we've talked about before, um, there are a variety of types of different gifts. They fall within two categories of either speaking or serving, and those gifts are given to the church in order to build the church up, to demonstrate the reality of one's conversion, and to demonstrate God's grace to us as we serve each other in that context. That's important for us to be mindful of. And so Paul is looking for the reality of that in the body of Christ. And so should we as well. Martin Luther famously said, if sin leaves us turned in upon ourselves, then the very essence of salvation as God's antidote to sin must be the reverse that is the distortion of our heart. Luther meant simply that sin turns us in upon ourselves, salvation turns us out from ourselves and towards others. And it points us towards God. It also turns us outward towards our fellow men. Paul would say in Philippians 2, 4, let each of you look not only to his own interest, but to the interests of others. To the interests of others. And what's interesting is that the false teachers in Colossae were able to gain a foothold in the hearts of their hearers because they preyed on that spirit of self-interest that is so deeply rooted in the human heart and which lingers on even after a person comes to faith in Christ. They were teasing that out. They were developing that rather than what Paul was talking about here. And so Paul's concern is to show them that their new relationship with Christ is inseparable from the new relationship into which they have been brought with their fellow Christians. So my question today to the church that's so absorbed with social justice and wokeness and critical race theory and everything, where is Colossians 3, 12 through 14? Where is it? Why isn't that the answer? Why isn't that the solution? Why isn't that the formula that the church is following rather than adopting something that Karl Marx came up with? It's absurd. We have abandoned the very thing that brings about peace and unity, and we have reincorporated those things which actually divide. Embracing our categories, our microaggressions, all of these things, rather than dealing with each other in the context of the reality of the presence of these new virtues. It makes me wonder whether or not the people advancing these things even know Christ. My sheep hear my voice, and another's they will not follow. 
And so we have to be mindful of these things, and this is the answer. When someone confronts you with these issues and we deal with these issues, we have to do so within the context of the, of the guidelines and the direction given to us by God's Word. Absolutely, we must do that. And if we don't, then we're going to have conflict, and it will continue to exist within the church um, until we get our arms around what it is that we are called to do. And this is what Paul is doing here. And so Paul here tells us in verse 13, as we know, that we're to forgive each other and that we're to forbear with each other. We do this in modeling Christ. And now in verse 14, he moves into this great category of, of love. And he wants to exhort these people in the context of this important biblical principle. So let's look at verse 14. Paul says then this, Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. So Christ is our example. We know that from verse 12 or 13. And now moving into verse 14, Paul wants to give us something that holds this together, that's going to be permanent, um, that's going to be consistent as it relates to the, the presence of these virtues within the body of Christ. And so we, what he says is this, beyond all these things. So he's reaching back into what we've just talked about in verse 12 and 13, the virtues that we've identified and the presence and the, and the playing out of those virtues through forbearance and forgiveness. And so to all of these, we are going to do something. We're going to bring them together. We're going to stick them together with love. And Paul wants to make certain that the people here understand that because clearly the false teacher is not of a mindset that would demonstrate any type of love. The false teacher is all about himself. He's all about his objectives. He's all about bringing about an end result that coincides with his false teaching, which is self-centered, self-focused, and a works-based form of righteousness. There's really no love in that type of dynamic. And so for Paul, he's saying that there is a love then, there's a particular type of love that is unique to Christians that makes these virtues usable. All right? How do I end up, why, why would I have a heart of compassion? Why would I be kind? Why would I be gentle? Why would I be humble? Why would I be patient? What motivates me to do that? What causes me to want to be engaged in that virtue with somebody else in the church? That virtue is going to be motivated by what? Love. You love that person, and you love them in such a way that these virtues then flow out of it. This is what Paul's ultimate point is going to be. And that this love then brings around about harmony within the body of Christ. And even Christ would use love to turn us away from ourselves and to others, as we know. We're going to look at 1 Corinthians 13 in a moment and see how that plays out. But again, Paul's call here is that the idea that these virtues exist is important within the church and that the motivation for doing them and using them is a love for each other. The one and others of Scripture are motivated by love. So as we look at verse 12, we find that um, this, this love is extended through us to others by the indwelling work of Jesus Christ. That makes sense. Paul here is about all about the union with Christ. 
And so he's speaking to the idea of the consequences of us being joined to Christ, if Christ is the perfect embodiment of love, and we are in Christ, then what's going to flow out of us? Love. It ought to. Now, this isn't 1960s hippie love. This isn't uh, kumbaya love. This isn't love without boundaries in the context of just, oh, I love them so much I'd let them do anything they want. You know, we hear that today with regard to how people want to raise their kids. Oh, I love them so much I don't give them any rules. Well, no, you don't then. You don't really love them, do you? Because if you love them, you would give them rules. Because God gave you a mind to use your mind to formulate rules that will protect your kids from themselves and others. And so we see that this love has a component to it that brings about a structure that is beneficial to everyone, that brings about a dynamic and an environment that is, that is, that is sweet and, and gentle and kind within the context of us being brought together through the perfect work of Jesus Christ, which is a perfect expression of the Father's love for us. And so this love is idea, something that binds us together. You know, it's interesting that in the, um, uh, the Greek language, this, this, this word that's rooted underneath this bond of unity that, that Paul is using here in verse 13 spoke to the idea of ships that would be tied together with a particular device. Uh, it's called rafting. So they would bring these large ships into, into a harbor, and they would raft up these ships together and bring them to completely tied together, and they would be like a unified, massive dock from which they could work. This is the idea and picture that is spoken of here, something that is tied together and joined together in order to improve the performance of the, of the, the joint effort, so to speak. And so you and I are tied to each other. We're hooked together in this context of this bond. Whether you like it or not, we're hooked up in that way. And so, Paul says that there's an ongoing nature to it as well. The language that Paul uses here in this verse is in the present tense, which underscores the idea that this love is an abiding, ongoing type of love. It doesn't stop. You don't just do it occasionally. It's something that permeates and is consistent within the body of Christ. We are always loving each other. And it's not a sentimental, syrupy, kind of superficial, fake love. It is a deep-seated love for each other based upon our bond in Jesus Christ. We see each other as poor, depraved sinners, saved by God's grace, brought together by the finished work of Jesus Christ, placed within the church, rejoicing that God has done so by his grace and mercy. That's what's happening here. Every Sunday, you walk in the back door, you're looking at people who have been saved by God's grace. Absent God's grace, they're separated from him forever and will spend eternity in hell. And so you're rejoicing, and you love those people, and you want to do much for them because Christ has done much for you. And indeed, you want to continue to do things for them. And you love them so much that you will tell them when they're in sin, and you love them so much that you will serve them sacrificially, and you love them so much that you will be here and be a part of their life and incorporate yourself into what they are doing in order to encourage them and build them up in the most precious faith, especially as you see the day approaching. Forsake not the assembling of yourselves together, as is the custom of son, the writer of Hebrews would say. Why would he say that? 
He would say that because to not be together would be an affront to Christ and would be, be contrary, dichotomous to the very idea of being a believer. You mean to tell me you have Christians in your town who don't go to church? Is that, can that possibly be? Can you be a Christian and not go to church? No. Christians go to church. Why? Because they love other Christians, and they want to be with other Christians. They want to revel in God's grace. They want to be where other Christians are so they can praise God together and sing glorious praises to his name for their salvation and hear the preaching of the word so they can know more about Christ and love him more because as they know him more, they can't help but love him more. That's why we don't entertain you here at Community Bible Church. I'm not, we're not putting on a play today. There's not a skit. I'm not sitting on a stool with a cup of coffee having a conversation with you. That's not what I'm called to do. I'm here to tell you about Jesus Christ, and that's going to motivate and move you to love him more, to serve him better, and to want to be involved in other people's lives. That's what this is all about. R.C. Sproul would say there's no such thing as a maverick molecule. Every molecule is in order according to God's design, and there's no such thing as a maverick Christian either. You don't get to be a cowboy, as much as I love cowboys, and I do, but we really shouldn't be cowboy Christians in the context of just wandering about the prairie on our own, strumming our guitar, doing our own thing, wandering in and out of town like a tumbleweed, blowing in with the wind, blowing back out with the wind, occasionally showing up, but never doing much. This is where you belong. And so, Paul is saying to us then, this tie that binds is this issue of love. So, you, you've got these virtues. I guess the best way to picture it would be you've got the, you, you, you've got the um, heart of compassion sweater on. Underneath is the kindness cardigan um, and button-down shirt. You've got the humility pants on. You're wearing your gentleness scarf and you've got your patient gloves on, and then all of a sudden you put on the cloak of love, which all brings it together. You know, it's all tied up together in that way. It's the glue. So the question is, do you love other believers? John would tell us in 1 John in his little epistle, and I'm, I know that Joel, Pastor Joel, has, has spelled this out, but this love has to be present. It is the sign that you are a Christian. We have to love each other. In Ephesians 4.3, Paul says, uses the same principle to exhort the Christians to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, the same idea there, peace and love kind of having the same idea. And Paul, as we remember in Colossians 2.19, in a meta metaphorical reference to the idea of the ligaments which hold the body of Christ together in unity, the same principle being expressed there as well. So unity is based on our love for each other because of what God has done for us through the work and person of Jesus Christ. And so what's important about that then is that we understand that unity is based upon doctrine. You and I have a comprehension of what God has done for us. What has Colossians been about? 
It's been about what God has done for you through Jesus Christ, how he's brought you together, and how to confront error. The, the unity of the Colossi church was not embracing another person's error, not saying kumbaya to the false teacher, not, not giving them a big old hug and saying, oh yeah, come on in, I know you have a different idea about something, but you know what, it's okay. No, we buy the truth and we sell it not. There, there is right and there is wrong. You're either square with Scripture or you're not. And so what Paul is saying is that the idea of unity is not based upon compromise, is not embracing error, but it's based upon a love for each other that is predicated upon the truths of Scripture. The truths of Scripture. Not your own ideas about it. It would not be, if you came to me and said to me, well, John, um, you know, I, I think that uh, whatever is something, and I say to you, well, does the, what does the Bible say about that? Because I'm not understanding that what you're saying is in the Bible. My, if I love you, I'm going to say back to you, I'm, I'm sorry, no. God's word says this, thus saith the Lord. This is the, always the problem I have with Bible studies. They're too open-ended go to a Bible study, someone's talking about something, they're all sitting around, and all of a sudden the question is, well, what do you think? I don't care what you think. I want to know what the Bible says. I came to a Bible study to find out what the Bible says, not what you think. So every Bible study, I want to encourage you, if you're involved in one, you ought to be asking the question, well, what does the Bible say? Thus saith the Lord. That's what has to happen. If you leave and you're kind of confused as you were when you arrived, you've not been at a Bible study. You've been at a discussion. You've been at a whatever. I don't know what most churches have become today. Nothing. But ultimately, you have to be asking yourself the question, what does the Bible say? And listen, the Bible actually does say things. It does. It tells us what is right. It tells us what is sin. Sin is a real thing. Now, today it's not popular to use the word sin. I know churches who are taking the word sin out of their scripture reading. When it comes up in a verse, they skip it or they supplant it with brokenness or something like that. Because sin is offensive, it means that you're wrong. And it means that you have to do something else other than what you're doing. And so, for Paul, He's making certain that love is not based upon anything other than the truths contained within God's Word, which communicate to us that I have been joined with Christ, that this transformation is that which, like Adam experienced in the garden, when Adam and Eve hid from God, Adam, where are you? And he finds them and he clothes them mercifully. You and I see each other every single time we meet as the new Adam, as the people clothed in the new Adam. That God did that. And that now like Adam, I can walk with God and have fellowship with him in the cool of the evening. I can talk to him. I can boldly approach the throne of grace. I can communicate with him because I have an advocate in Jesus Christ who is my great high priest, and I am welcome, and I am adopted into the family of God, and I am there forever, and nothing can take me away from that. 
That is what unifies us. My unity is not based upon my compromise on your position on homosexuality or anything else or, or, or what does pro-life really mean or on social justice or on... I'm not going to do that because those are things that are antithetical to Scripture. Scripture is clear about those things. Our unity is based upon the doctrine contained in Scripture. Well, you say, well, I just want to hear about Jesus. Well, I tell you what, we've got a whole epistle about Jesus and it's been nothing but doctrine. One after the other. Deep doctrine. You've been swimming in the deep end of the pool since verse 1 of chapter 1. And so, this idea of unity is important for us, and we have to make certain that we don't buy into the modern mindset about it, that it's compromise, that it's capitulation, that it's acquiescence to other positions. Well, if you're loving... You know, if you're, a, you know, they'll do, do, they'll do this. I hear this. You go to these conferences or you go to these, you hear these guys and, and they'll, they'll talk about how loving a person is because of their ability to accept other people's positions and perspectives. I, that's not loving. That's nothing. That's just wishy-washy nonsense. It's, it's nonsense. And the church is too full of that today. Where are the men? that will stand up and say, thus saith the Lord. And so, the relationships of believers within the body of Christ must operate in love if they are to maintain the unity of the Spirit, capital S. So think about that for a minute. If, it, if the unity is in the Spirit, if the unity is, is predicated upon the Holy Spirit, do you think the Holy Spirit is going to bring about unity based upon error? Uh-uh. What is the primary, one of the primary roles of the Holy Spirit? It's to bring you to the truth, right? It is by the Holy Spirit that God moved men to pen his word, to communicate his truth. It's his truth. It's not your truth. It's his truth. And so keep that in mind, friends, because we live in a day and age when that is not where the church is at. The unity of the Spirit is characterized as the unity of other things that somehow people want to connect to the Spirit. Ultimately, it is God's Word that all, it is all that matters in this way. And so Paul, here in this passage, in verse 14, beyond all these things, put on this attitude, this expression of love. And this love will then serve as a perfect bond of unity, a unity brought about by the Holy Spirit that results in harmony within the church predicated upon the truths of God's Word. Truth, truth. Truth, truth. Now, friends, I'm going to ask you, do you believe this? Do you believe this book? You know, Joel Osteen remarkably stands up before every service and he holds his Bible up and he's got this little chant that they do. This is God's word. I know what it means. I love its content. I believe it's true. And I believe it's for me. And it's for now. It goes on and on. I wish he did. But the idea here is, do we truly believe it? You know, there's so many attacks on God's word today. They're coming from everywhere, from circles and quarters that you would have never imagined that they happened, would happen. And so for Paul, unity 
is based upon the perfect bond or the bond of love. Love brings about a unity that is based upon the truths contained within God's word. And what does God's word primarily tell me about? The work and person of Jesus Christ. So you got to get Jesus Christ right. You can't have unity with people who don't. So I'm not going to have an ecumenical agreement with the Roman Catholics. Why? Because they have the work and person of Jesus Christ flat out wrong. I cannot join hands with the Muslims nor anybody else for that matter, unless they acknowledge who Jesus Christ is. There can only be unity around that. Around that. And so, friends, keep in mind, as you're exercising these virtues, that you're doing so out of love for other people who have been saved by God through Jesus Christ, and you're marveling in the wonders of all that he has done for you and spared you from. And that type of love is love that will conquer. We'll next time get into 1 Corinthians 13 and kind of look at what Paul does with that and how we can better understand the right kind of love because there's a type of love that is offensive. It's kind of like a clanging cymbal or it's, a, it's, it's, it's like fingernails on a chalkboard. It's not the right kind. And so I trust that you will be here next time, Lord willing, and we'll continue to look at this passage. And we need to be reminded of the fact that Jesus Christ stands as a perfect example of one who was loving and did so in a way that brought about unity. Unity in the context of his purpose and his objective and his plan, um, which was ultimately achieved and is being achieved through our salvation. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we love you. Thank you for this encouraging word today. Help us to be mindful of who we are in Christ and how we love each other in that context. Help us to be focused on that as we assemble together and as we go out into the world and, and help us to be an expression of that, not in, the, not in the context of compromise, but in the context of a loving conviction that is willing to speak up and to speak out about the truths of the gospel and about the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. We praise you in his name. Amen.